Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 14. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. Today we are going to bring you a little bit of history on Calder Field, and um, that's kind of where we had started our journey at, so do you want to get started with that, Gretch? Yeah, so um, we are going to spend the next couple of episodes talking about the victims in Calder Field, how they tie together um, possible suspects in those cases, and so those will be the next couple of episodes to but for us, Calder Field is where we actually began our journey. Um, we really thought when we started the podcast that this was where it was going to begin for us. That, right. that really our first episodes were going to start with the victims in Calder Field. And it's very strange to be at this point now talking about the victims in Calder Field, realizing that we've had so many episodes before and that this is not not the beginning. But the other strange part of this is that realization as we've worked along this, that it's not the end either. Right. That the Calder field victims are really the middle and kind of the heart. And the reason that we say that is the Calder field victims really brought notoriety to the other cases. And those cases, I think so many of them would have been forgotten, never mentioned, and just lost with time if it wasn't for what happens on at Calder Field, which any time that you start talking about the Calder Field victims, then, you know, you get links to the other victims who are out there, either the ones that we've already talked about in the beginning or ones that we'll be talking about in future episodes. And so it's kind of the heart. And and it, without these cases being solved, it also helps continue to bring eyes to these other cases that aren't solved too. But to give you a little bit of an idea of what we're talking about with Calder Field is four victims' bodies were found at different times in Calder Field, which is an abandoned oil field in Lake City between 1984 and 1991. And it's at that point in time, it was kind of this lonely dirt stretch of road that um, stretched for a couple of miles um, off the League City Parkway into some neighborhoods going parallel to the I-45 feeder road and I-45. So when you're standing there on Calder Road, you can see and hear the traffic from the interstate. Um but back then, there weren't a whole lot of houses. Um, there were about 35 residents there on Calder Road and then a trailer park on the corner of Calder Road and Irvine Road, which is really smack dab in the middle of what we're talking about. And um, not a highly populated area, a lot of open field there, um, overgrown brush and just kind of this small dirt track that goes into that area. So the first victim that we come across is Heidi Vierl. And so you're going to talk about her. Okay, so we'll get started um, with Heidi Villarreal Fry. She was a 25-year-old bartender and waitress. 
She was born in Victoria, Texas, and had lived in League City for the past 11 years up into her disappearance. Her parents were Joseph and Janie. They also lived in League City. She was one of six kids. She had three brothers and two sisters. She was married at the age of 17 and had a daughter out of that marriage. She was divorced by 21. We do think that she might have been married again, which is where the surname Fry comes from. Um, And I think one of the interesting things about that surname Fry is that when you come across it, it's spelled differently several different times. I mean, sometimes you get Fry, sometimes you get Faye. Um, It's not on her death certificate. Or, no, it's not on her uh, obituary. We don't know about her death certificate because we haven't seen that. Um, But we don't really have any information on that. Um, Right. And, you know, we did decide to go by Villarreal because that is what is on um, the death certificate or the application for that. Um, There was no mention of her husband if she was married at that time. Right. So, um, but on October the 10th, at 1983, she was last seen at a convenience store on FM 518 using a payphone. She had been staying at her parents' house and recovering from a hospital stay. Some reports said she had, she had planned a hitchhike, and other reports of her hitchhiking may have been false, as the articles from her family stated that that wasn't something that she was known to do, was to take rides from strangers. Um, her, her parents did report her missing. And it was out of Pearland, I believe. Um, I'm not a, not exactly sure. I do know that her parents reported her missing. They may have reported her missing to more than one uh, police department. Okay. Thinking that um, she did, she possibly was going to see a boyfriend. And so that would have been the, the reason that maybe they reported to the police department where he was and then also reported to the Leak City Police Department. Right, okay. So. And then, and there was not really an investigation done on her because she was an adult at the time of her disappearance. Um, she was found in April of 1984. A dog had brought a school home located in the 1300 block of Irvin Street and dropped it at the feet of a small child. When you're thinking of the field and location, the rest of her remains were found in Calder Field. Um, yeah, so when you're looking at Irvine Street, so um, Irvine Street's kind of a cross street of Calder Road. And um, so you have the houses and the trailer park on one side of Irvine. And then on the other side of Irving, you have what is essentially Calder Field. Right. So, and that's also where the Stardust Trails right. um, horse barn was. It yeah. was right there on that corner as well. Um, and I think we'll spend a lot more time talking about the stardust, um, horse and trail riding because that does tie into one of the suspects in this case. And so it's, it is interesting that the location of the stardust trails is right there, you know, where stardust trails basically backs up to Calder or is, is really right there in Calder field. Mm -hmm. Just a little wire fence that kind of separates those two properties. Um, it was, it was about a week later after the, the remains were found that she would have been identified. Um, the newspaper reports said that her body was nude. 
Her cause of death was homicide, but her manner of death was undetermined. Um, the medical examiner noted that she had broken ribs and she may have been beaten with a club. Yeah, and I think that can be confusing to somebody, you know, um, when they hear that, you know, medical examiner doesn't give a cause of death um, with no soft tissue because her body was skeletonized. Um, you're not necessarily going to get an actual cause of death because it could be many factors. But the medical examiner is noting enough information here to believe that a beating was what probably caused her death, but you can't necessarily say whether or not it was head trauma or, you know, whether or not like when you're beating like somebody, internal bleeding, internal or, bleeding right. right. And so you don't have enough soft tissue there to make that determination, but he's determining that it's homicide. There's, she didn't put herself in that field. Um, and that there's enough there with the beating that looks like that that probably was what contributed to her death. And so he's determining that it's homicide. It's right. just, he's saying, I can't tell you for sure 100% of, you know, what, what the actual cause was. And you could have a very good possibility here. You could have somebody who was beaten. Her ribs are broken. Fingers are broken. Other things are broken, but then is also strangled. And that could be the cause of death. Right. You just don't have enough information there to know. Right. So, um, in an interview with her family, you know, they did say the discovery of her body helped give her family some answers, but her mother had stated that, you know, they know where she's buried, but she did feel like there was something else out there. Maybe somebody had some more answers or could come forward, you know, with her uh, daughter's case. But sadly, both of her parents had passed away with uh, no answers in her case. Yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate thing is that, you know, her parents, you know, both pass away. Her father, a few years after, you know, her body is found. And then her mother, you know, more like 20 years after after her body is found, but with no answers, right? you know, of, about what happened to her. And in the way that law enforcement treated that case in the beginning with her as a runaway, you you would hope that then that case, you know, would have really, you know, now you have her body, now you have a homicide being the cause of death, that that would have really ignited, you know, them trying to figure out what had actually happened to her. It doesn't really appear like they were able to come up with any answers. And so her case goes relatively cold, relatively quickly. Right. Without investigation, a big investigation ahead of time though, her case probably was really pretty cold anyway, because if you're thinking about witnesses that could have been contacted about anything that had gone on in the area, did they see anything strange? You know, was there somebody parked down there who shouldn't be parked down there? You know, um, did you see lights or anything that shouldn't have happened? You're not going to remember that, that long later. Right. You know, and uh, and so that really does leave a lot there kind of open. Right. You know, and um, it does go back to sometimes when, you know, we 
do research or, you know, when people come forward years later, you know, they're often asked, like, why didn't you come forward at that time? Well, simply they weren't asked. Right. You know, there was no investigation. Nobody came knocking on the door asking questions. So they don't know that they even are sitting on anything that could be relevant. Uh-huh. And I mean, I, I think certainly in this case, that that is the possibility because her case really kind of it gets this bit of information that comes out that her body has been discovered that, you know, she had gone missing um, how long she had been missing. And then again, really nothing mm-hmm. until, you know, a little bit later on. And, um, and, and we're talking six months. So, I mean, it's not like it was a lot of time that had passed from when she, you know, had disappeared to when she was found either. No. So if, if they had asked, there might've been, you know, if they had did more of an investigation, uh-huh. there might have been more people that could have answered those questions. I, yeah, I mean, some of it, I think, yes, but it, it really depends on how much interviewing you did in the early time of the people who were like at the convenience store. Did they see her get in a car? Did they see her talk to anybody? You know, those types of things, because I don't know six months later if you would remember. You know, think of all the things that happened yeah. in a six-month Well, period. sure. I mean, if you were just maybe a patron, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. You know, if her body had been discovered within days of going missing, I think you would have probably had a better chance of going back and mm-hmm. saying, hey, did you see somebody using a payphone here? We did find her body. Somebody might have jogged up their memory right. a little bit more. And where that convenience store is on 518 to call the road is it's just a couple miles. Right. I mean, that's a snatch and grab to me, you know. And then there's no more information. Her name is really not mentioned at all until um, the next case that we're going to talk about. The next victim that we're going to talk about is Laura Miller. All right. So Laura Lynn Miller went missing on September 16th, 1984. Janet Miller, which is her mother, drove her 16-year-old daughter to the convenience store that was located on Hobbs in 518, which if this sounds familiar, it is very familiar. It is the same. It's the exact same convenience store, exact same payphone. Mm -hmm. It is. So, and it's. As Heidi. Right. And it's not the, it's not the last time these two cases will intersect either. Right. So. Um, Laura wanted to use the payphone to call her boyfriend. Um, the reason that she needed to use the payphone was because her family had just moved into a new home, new, new home and the phone was not, uh, connected yet. Right. So the family lived in Dickinson prior and moved to Lake city, which makes sense at that time. Cause it was, you know, really coming up. Uh-huh. Um, Laura was to walk the short distance home after she was done using the phone because her mother needed to go to town and run some errands. Um, and I think, you know, there are some people who will think that, you know, it's odd for her to be walking home in such a busy area, even today, you know, because we work in that area. I do not think that it would be unusual to see a 16 year old, you know, going up there to the convenience store and then walking home. There's a lot of houses in that area. It's a. Um, well, yeah, because all those houses on Hobbs right there is 
the houses that were probably being built at this time. Right. But when I drive down that road, you know, going home, you see kids all the time. Right. I mean, even walking from that school up. Well, and even the school bus stop mm-hmm. is like several blocks up there. And those kids walk down, you know, into those neighborhoods and stuff. I just don't think this is anything that any parent wouldn't do nowadays. Right. So, I mean, we wouldn't necessarily be using a payphone, but... You know, I don't think that this is this is unusual. No. It's not a dangerous area back then. It's not a dangerous area now. Right. Definitely and it's not. certainly not an area that I would feel uncomfortable walking in. Mm-hmm. And lots of families do there. Lots. Right. Um, later that night, when Laura's father, Tim, and her mother, Janet, had arrived home, they realized that she was not there, had not returned from using the payphone, and that's when they began to look with her. Uh, look for her. Um, Laura's boyfriend that she was in contact with earlier that day also helped with the search at that point. Um, Tim Miller did beg the police to look in the field where Heidi's body was discovered. He believed that it was not a coincidence that the two girls went missing from the same spot. Um, He was told that they would not um, actually look in there and they did not give him an exact location as to where Heidi was found. They also told him um, that he was not to have any contact with the Villarreal family. And Miller said that the officer told him that Heidi was a girl who worked at a bar and some guy took her home after closing. And because she would not consent to sex and there was a struggle, the guy killed her and dumped her in that. And it's an isolated incident. And I think what's very, very sad about this is, you know, you have an officer who is telling a father whose daughter is missing this story of, Hey, this is just a girl who worked at a bar. You know, one, it doesn't even match any of what was talked about at the missing persons, you know, as her being a missing person and reported missing. So, so that's number one, but, and we're talking about Heidi just to be clear. Right. But number two, it's, it's this just lack of, empathy at all you know just for either one of them for either one of them Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that gets me so um it wouldn't be until february 3rd of 1986 when two boys riding their bikes in the area smelled something terrible and decided to investigate uh that's when her remains were found off of calder road in calder field um so when they're um so the the um two people riding the bikes so this is actually them riding a dirt bike um in that area and um and when they when they're smelling this this smell they kind of take off and decide to investigate um they actually basically are starting to walk through this waist tall grass you know um if you're from other areas probably in February of 1996 you know, you probably wouldn't have had waist tall grass, but at that point, you know, in Texas, you know, any overgrown field, the grass is going to grow up to a certain level and then kind of lay down. Right. And so, um, you're going to have very tall grass and then kind of the grass from that has kind of laid down is kind of going to be underneath you. So, you know, you're really trekking through this field to try to find out what was, what was going on. Right. 
Um, so. And you can see where, you know, two young boys would be like, oh, let's go look, you know, how cool yeah. we're going on a little adventure. I mean, thank God they did because they were able to uh, find her. Uh-huh. Um, so the police were called to the scene where the boys had found uh, the remains of one woman. Yeah, so the, when the police get out to the area um, where the remains have been found, within just a few uh, feet, they actually locate the body of a second victim. So in talking about the body of the first victim, that first victim is lying on top of the ground, has appeared to be there for about six months to a year. The body of the second victim, some of the bones were above the ground while more of the remains had to be dug out of the ground. Police did um, announce to the public that the remains were found near the same spot where, where Heidi was found a few years earlier. At the time the remains were found, local law enforcement, this would be League City law enforcement, announced that there were no local League City missing person case that seemed to be related to the remains. And I know you have a lot to say there. Yeah, I, I mean, I just couldn't believe that because we do know that missing person reports were filed. Right. And for them to say that there were none open, obviously they were not communicating well within the department um, at that time. Right. And there wasn't um, even really a department for that. Well, there certainly was not a missing persons department from what I can tell. Mm -hmm. And and I think missing persons departments in, in law enforcement, um, you know, in large law enforcement uh, jurisdictions start to come around around this time period. Um, but in small areas, and this would have been a more rural small area, it's, it's a lot bigger now, mm -hmm. but it would have been, would have been more rural than what it is today in small areas. I'm not hundred percent sure that you would have a missing persons department. Anyway, right. you would have detectives. I mean, I came from a very small town and, and certainly you did not have like a homicide detective, a missing persons detective, you know, and, and these people who worked on certain cases, you had detectives who worked on cases of, missing people or of homicide. Right. But they would also work on domestic violence cases. Right. They're so, juggling all of them. Yeah. So mm -hmm. they're juggling a lot of them. And I think in these, in this type of department, you probably had that. You, you may not have even had a homicide department, but what really gets me about this announcement is there, Again. Laura is clearly missing at this time. Her family is very involved in trying to find out what happened to her. And so to make this off color statement like this really shows how out of touch the department was to what was going on, not only in League City alone and how much they truly believed that Laura Miller was probably just a runaway, but number two, what was actually going along in the county and the neighboring counties. So, because we've talked about cases, several cases that had this body not by an identified, um, then, you know, it could have possibly matched to another case. So, um, so we've had those conversations about other cases that we've pointed out that could come close to matching, you know, both of these bodies. So just that off color statement, you know, is, 
I, I just out of out of touch. Yeah, and, and I mean, certainly... and it's, it's also just like the earlier statement from another police officer stating, you know, that these are isolated events and don't contact this family and when they should be, you know, reaching out to each other and, and really right. supporting each other mm-hmm. at this time, you know, it's just, <laughs> oh, it gets to me. So the, the second victim in the field, the one who would have been there longer and his body more was more buried was identified within a few days as being Laura Miller. And so, um, but a lot of that has to do with the Miller family, you know, getting her dental records, taking her dental records to the, to the agency and asking for them to be compared, you know? Yeah. I remember asking you, I'm like, that was quick. You know, how did they do that? Considering that they weren't even looking at missing persons. Right. And you said this because her family had turned over those records with yeah. her. For and her dental. So, so again, you go back to a very involved family you know, who really was pushing to um, find out what had happened in, in her case. So, Right. And so um, when they did discover her remains, um, Tim Miller had uh, recognized that the shirt that was found next to her body was hers. It had never been tested for D- DNA. And uh, it is believed that the shirt may have been lost during the investigation. Yeah, I mean the Miller family has talked about this shirt on um, on a couple of different uh, and I, I really do believe if they had the shirt, he would have had that tested by now. Yeah, um, certainly a couple different places that that he has has mentioned about the shirt being found um, near there. I think that you can't you can't discount this shirt. The shirt very possibly could have been could have been belonged to. Um, to Laura could have belonged to Heidi could have been belonged to the other victim who was found that day. And so, um, but law enforcement has never come out publicly and stated that the shirt is lost. Right. So, you know, it's just that the, you know, the family has certainly said that this was found and that they have asked on numerous occasions for what is being done with this shirt. The unfortunate thing here is DNA with this case is really a stretch. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about relatively skeletonized remains. And I just, I think, you know, trying to a shirt that had been out there for that long period of time, it would have been very difficult to, um, to find anything off of it. Right. So um, in June of 1997, the family had Laura's remains uh, examined again. At that time, the family was not happy with the investigation and uh, they were not sure how much care was actually taken with their daughter's uh, remains. They wanted to be sure that it, it was indeed Laura in that grave and that her remains were not mixed with the remains of the other women that were found in that location. Um, one of the issues that the Millers uh, were told of all the remains um, is that, that they would all be, uh, that they were all buried together except for two small bones. Later in records, as Tim searched, he found out that a very large portion of her remains were kept by the police. The police said that they were never told that the family had, they had never told the family that they had the remains um and that it was customary for the police to keep a large amount of them for testing in an open case. Well, 
And I think, you know, one of the things here is it does seem to be very confusing about what law enforcement does tell the family, you know, how much information that they tell the family and, and comments like it was customary kind of lead you to believe that police believed that the family should have just known that it was customary to keep a large portion of these remains. Um, they were also concerned that her remains might have been buried with other remains, right. you know, because, um, you know, there was one other person found in the field with her that day. And in all fairness, they weren't hundred percent sure that there could have possibly been other people right. who were out there. Um, I mean, he does uh, actually go after the police department uh -huh. later and, you know, tries to sue them. So, well, yeah, I think he sues them for open records mm -hmm. and, and several different things. And, um, you know, the world at this point in time is, is kind of a, a different type of place too. This, this is all happening um, before you have a victim's rights act that actually details and explains, you know, what victims of murder victims, families would actually be able to, um, be given. And so, you know, that may be some of what's going on here too, is, you know, at that point in time, police believe that they didn't have to give the family much information. Right. So sadly. I have to tell you, Gretchen, Tim Miller, is probably the parent that I, I would honestly be. I would be just as obsessed as he is. Um, I mean, every action that he takes after his daughter is discovered in that way, he is truly fighting for, you know, justice for her to this very day as we're recording this. Uh -huh. He has never stopped fighting for her. You know, and one of the interesting things about him is that he does end up leasing Calderfield, right? He tears that entire field up. Well, I mean, you know, definitely he does. He goes in there and does an extensive ground search, you know, yes. with the idea. I mean, he does this after the fourth victim is, is found out there. Um, but I think, you know, his point was that he felt like police were missing something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really, truly, we won't necessarily know if they were. So because even though, you know, we found little out there, so much of that could have been gone before. Because if they had actually searched that field when he asked right after his daughter had gone missing. There's no doubt in my mind that she was there. Oh, sure. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, what answers could we have had today if all that time wouldn't have gone by? Right. If the years hadn't gone by, you know, with her laying out there. Yes, you may not have been able to save her, but could you have saved the next one? Yeah, save the next one. There might have been more evidence that could have been collected. You know, right. I mean, the elements are harsh out here. You know, yeah. uh, lots of rain, lots of heat, lots of animals. And so, you know, saying that he was out there looking for something, you know, he I mean, wasn't he, he wasn't given the chance to to look for her in the beginning. So, yeah. you know, um, and the entire Miller family really 
pushed and pushed and pushed, you know, to have police take a better look at this case. And, you know, unfortunately, I think we'll get a lot more into to Miller's um, involvement in the case because he definitely comes in at different points in times when we talk about suspects in this case. But his involvement with this also led to an amazing something. That's right. So he basically, um, you know, became a one man crusader and founded what we know now as uh, the Texas EquiSearch. Um, he did, it was founded in the year 2000. Um, you know, he has been on hundreds of searches um, for the missing, you know, to date. Uh, but we, we looked it up. It was, they, he has found or recovered with this team, uh, 400 living, uh, 238 bodies. So, I mean, that's incredible numbers. Right. You know, he's bringing a lot of answers to some families uh, and bringing home, you know, others to there. So, um, well, and the, res I mean, you know, the resources that Texas, Texas EquiSearch is able to bear, you know, to bring in to help these families search for these victims is just astronomical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be able to bring that knowledge and that resource and those volunteers and stuff, but those volunteers aren't just Texas, you know, um, he no, goes, I believe it's like basically, you know, he goes state all to over state the and States, stuff like yeah. that, you know, mm -hmm. pairs teams up with other, um, maybe private investigators and stuff like yeah. that. So, I mean, what he has done here is phenomenal, mm -hmm. um, you know, for his daughter and for many other families, right? you know, I mean, what a man. I'm telling you, I would be that parent right there. I would not give up either. I'd probably be crazy. You know, yeah. I'd want some answers. You know, I really would want some answers. And, yeah, I mean, my hat my hat goes off to him. I really does. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to leave people thinking that we've forgotten that there were two victims found that day in that field. Um, we haven't forgotten that at all. We will be covering more about the second victim in the next episode that um is coming up and so keep listening to us to hear more and um, we will be telling her story and then we'll also be telling the story of the fourth victim who's later found too and again you know the next couple of episodes that we'll be doing will be focusing on this area on these victims and on these suspects our true belief is that when you look at this, there may be answers here that would link to other cases, maybe cases that we've talked about before, but maybe cases that we'll talk about in the end. Right. So exactly right. I can't wait to bring them that FBI profile too. So. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Well, with that, uh, I guess we're signing off. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. joining us.